Hello, and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Justin Perkins. Justin is a Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based mastering engineer who's mastered records for the Gaslight Anthem, Tommy Stinson, Screeching Weasel, Smoking Popes, Tediment, and tons, tons more. We get into all sorts of aspects of mastering and production, and we talk about a wide variety of things. I think we have a really awesome conversation. So after you listen to this, go over to Noise Creators, check out Justin's profile. He has a Spotify playlist. You can get to know him a little bit better and check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, Tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Well, I'm using a Audio-Technica 4047 microphone into a Universal Audio Twin. Very cool. So tell me about your background in music. Well, you know, I started playing music in middle school with some friends. We had some bands and, you know, we needed to record ourselves and we didn't really have the money to go into an actual studio or really any business being an actual studio. So just started recording our band, you know, in, in friends' basements on eight track and eventually other bands heard that and wanted me to do the same for them. And I sort of found a balance between playing in bands and recording bands through my teens and early twenties. And then eventually just made the shift to studio work full-time. I found it hard to, I didn't particular, particularly like touring and being gone for a long time, and I found it much more easy to make a living, you know, being in the studio with other bands, and more rewarding. That was the same dislike that brought me to it as well. So you're producing bands, how do you, uh, how does that come into being, and how does that shape up over the years? I was lucky my dad let me do stuff out of his basement for a while, and eventually just, you know, through my recording our band, I got the attention of other bands and, you know, developed my skills. And, you know, I, I still remember the day that I was doing the same thing I always did, but all of a sudden the recording just sounded great. And I was like, what, you know, what's different? What's different? And, it, you know, obviously it turned out that the band was just great. So I was mm. starting to get the attention of bands that actually, you know, were getting better and better. And, you know, that really helped, that really helped develop my skills. And then, you know, kind of goes hand in hand, you know, work with a little bit better bands, develop your skills, you know, it's sort of a, a team effort. Nice. So tell me about the transition from producing and how you get on your path to becoming a mastering engineer. Um, 
basically came out of necessity. You know, I was recording. Eventually, I moved out of my dad's basement up to a studio called Simple Studios in Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember the bands like Boris the Sprinkler. Oh, I loved those records. Yeah, so that's, you know, their records always sounded better than anyone else's in the area. And I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. who recorded this and why does it sound so much better? And eventually, you know, I started a band I was in recorded there. And then I started recording other bands there because there was open time and... Just out of necessity, you know, and looking back, I wish I had done this, but I was ended up mastering some projects as well. This is before it was so easy to, you know, send files through the internet to get mastered. It was kind of a big deal to actually travel to the mastering studio and, and do it. You, know, you either had to drop off the files or the tapes. And being in, you know, central Wisconsin, there wasn't a whole lot of great options. There was a studio in Milwaukee that actually ended up using that room years later, which is kind of funny, but mostly out of necessity, I just was starting to master stuff that I was recording. You know, I would certainly, I always loved it when bands had a mastering engineer in mind or the budget for it, but a lot of times it came down to either me doing it or nobody doing it, or maybe a friend that has some Waves plugins that thinks they, you know, want to try it, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, basically... It was just a necessity thing, and then I started getting more and more calls for for mastering specifically, and it struck me as a little bit odd at first, but then I realized, you know, how much I enjoyed the process, and just started learning more and more about it, and eventually got comfortable with calling myself that officially. So did you close the door on producing? How did that all happen? It it was a gradual shift. You know, I, I went from Simple Studios in Green Bay. I worked down at Smart Studios in Madison. Awesome. In the mid to late 2000s until they closed. I moved to Milwaukee and, you know, it was just sort of a gradual shift. I ended up... And, and for people who don't know the story of Smart, maybe uh, give us a few details. Uh, well, it's been around since, I believe, the mid-80s. Uh, Butch Vig is one of the co-owners and probably most famous for producing Nevermind by Nirvana, but also did a whole bunch of the sub-pop stuff from the late 80s, early 90s, and then eventually, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, and then his own band Garbage. And, you know, it's just, it was all, you know, it was one of the great studios in Wisconsin, and it was usually bands that got to record there. It was, you know, definitely a privilege and a, and noteworthy if, if you had the budget or and it was actually a very affordable studio, but mm. in the 90s, you know, everything got expensive. You know, they exp- they expanded. So, you know, they were doing very expensive records, and it was just hard for smaller brands to fit into their schedule. That changed a lot in the mid-2000s. I mean, I did some projects there for very affordable rates, and uh, that was a good deal. So that's the history of Smart, you know, a very, very, very brief. There's a documentary about it coming out or, or out already? Is that the case? Yeah, I'm not sure the official status. I mean, I've seen it. They've done a few tours, you know, screening tours, and it's been at a few film festivals. Um, I think you can actually order a physical, you know, DVD copy. I'm I'm not sure if it's out on Netflix or, Mm. you know, the iTunes store, any of that yet. But it should be, if it's not, it should be very soon. And it's it's very well done. And, you know, if you're a fan of, of that music from that era or even just... It's not so much about the studio, it's more about the bands and the music scene that, that it helped create. Nice. Okay, so back to you. Tell me more. So eventually, you know, I moved to Milwaukee and there was a pretty good mastering studio here already. And I just sort of stumbled in the owner of the building or the owner of the studio. You know, he owned the building. He wanted to move out to the East Coast 
and said, hey, you know, I got this room. Do you want to rent it? It's, you know, it was already built out. Obviously, it didn't have any gear. So I moved all my gear in there and, you know, splurged for you know, some mastering specific things because I was thinking of, you know, making the transition anyway. That's when I invested in, you know, an analog mastering chain and, you know, all the tools that you would really see in a mastering studio. But I was still producing and recording a few bands that I really still wanted to do. You know, there's still some really great bands that I didn't want to say no to. And, mm-hmm. you know, my schedule wasn't 100% full with mastering. So it got to a point where, you know, the studio was actually very big and I had an overdub room. So we were able to do drums at a different studio and then bring it to my place and do overdubs, vocals, and, and the mixing. And it got to a point where I, I, I had a couple assistant engineers and, and interns that could help out with some of the the recording, you know, the over vocal sessions and, and things like that. Eventually, I just closed the door on all that, and now I, I don't do any... I shouldn't say I don't do any recording, but I don't pursue any recording projects. Got you. Um, I, I've managed to do about one a year, whether it's just mixing the record or getting involved with production. But you know, I've sort of made it a goal to at least try to be involved with one album a year and make it really great. Because mm. especially, you know, mastering engineers kind of fly under the radar, Mm-hmm. I think, especially with the lack of album credits these days, you know, it's hard to really, you know, get get any attention to your name just mastering. I mean, there's guys that do it, but I thought it'd be good, you know, just good for a number of reasons to just pick a band and really go all in with them and, and work on the, the recording, the mixing, and the mastering. Totally, yeah. I mean, it is, it is the fight. I think it's like even the most high-profile ma- mastering guy is usually a few steps below the uh, most high-profile engineer or producer. Yeah, so it's just kind of a way to keep the studio name out there and and just sort of use a different part of my brain i mean a big reason i not a big reason but one reason i got out of producing and recording is just i wanted to put so much time into making the record and the budgets were getting smaller and smaller so the last the last few big projects i did i mean if you really do the math i've probably worked for minimum wage or less but i'm the kind of guy where if my name's going to go on it i, I want to see it through you know i'm not just going to say well this is as good as it can be because you only have this much money you know i just can't do that and it was sort of burning me out and i just had this great opportunity fall into my lap where i already had a lot of mastering clients this perfectly built out mastering room fell in my lap you know i just needed to equip it and all those things sort of worked together and i was able to just focus on one thing again very cool tell me a little bit about something that makes that studio unique uh, well i'm not in that room anymore mm, okay Actually, it moved a couple times since then. The, the building got sold. That is how it goes, um, which yeah. I, which I could tell was going to happen. And then I had a chance to move to another space and team up with a company that needed a mastering engineer for their for their library music. You know, they do production music. And, you know, a couple days a week I work on their stuff. And for a while I was in their building. Now, as lame as it sounds, I'm working out of my house because that's... I ended up ended up buying a nice uh, a house and it had this great sounding room and I'm like you know at first I was just using it to listen to music in and it got to the point where I'm like I can do everything I need down here you know clients rarely come in anymore even if they're in the same city as me you know it's pretty rare. I, I was so. gonna say like, you know it's it's funny because like I think that one it's what most of us dream of we're like oh I don't want to commute. And then two, it's like with since mastering is so rarely attended. I I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think attending oftentimes makes the record worse. So it's just like no fun to have to, to not do it there. It makes more sense to do it at home. I agree with that. The, the last attended session I did, I ended up reprinting the entire record again because there was two people here 
part of the project and I just couldn't give it a hundred percent focus. And after they left, I revisited it and like, you know, I, I just got to reprint this. There's just a couple little things that weren't quite right that, that probably wouldn't have happened if they weren't here. It was kind of thing where I've known them for a while, a good client. If they want to come, I'll definitely let them come. But it ended up being more of a distraction than anything. And the thing is, most people I feel like want to come because they want to check it out and think it's cool. I mean, I can't remember the last time I did an attended session where the client was giving me, you know, real-time feedback mm-hmm. about... Because this ties, you know, back when I used to take my records to a mastering engineer, which ironically is the room I moved into, I would go there and I didn't really know what it sounded like. I, I could tell it was impressive. He had very big speakers, but I was in a foreign environment and... Back then, I was honestly going because I could. It, it would take two days to send the record through the internet, so I'm like, I'm just going to bring you the files. Or a, a couple of them were on reels of tape, and I'm like, well, I might as well just drive them there and tell you, you know, a few details. The other thing about not doing attended mastering sessions is that it allows me to keep my rates pretty low and allows me to do pretty quick turnaround times, which is seems to be what the majority of people are after these days. You know, I'd I'd love to have a huge fancy space again where clients can come in and hang out all day but then you're just looking at that much more overhead which in the end gets passed back on to the customer so i'm pretty happy with this non-attended mastering scenario you know working from home it's a treated room it's it sounds great it's not like i'm in my bedroom or something like that but the low overhead allows me again to keep those rates low and it also allows me to invest more money in equipment and software and spend time doing beta testing for, for software companies, which helps improve things as well. Yeah, rather rather than uh, sitting around and uh, being staying awake all night being nervous that the tape gets erased in the mail or doesn't get there. Yeah, so I just, I just find attendance, you know, I really don't care to do them. You know, I'll make a couple of rare exceptions, but I what I do do is I say, you know, I'll do a free test master for you and we'll get one song to where you're happy with it. And if, if that doesn't happen, then you're not out any money. And that, that usually works pretty well, you know, and I have a pretty streamlined system for delivering masters. Once I have the whole project ready to go, you know, it's pretty streamlined. And I think I have a few older clients that get a little weirded out about it. And there's there's even one where I have to send them a reference CD of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but th- that's pretty. Ra- I mean, that's the that's the one percent mm. rarity. And the thing is, most changes I can make same day. If I do a record and they're like, "It's great," just this one song needs to be a little louder, or can you put a couple seconds between these two songs? I mean, I can do that in a matter of minutes or hours. The the last thing that drove me to it was the scheduling logistics. You know, I, people would when I had the big studio where clients could come and there was a lounge. You know, they would set up a date and then inevitably their mixing would be a little behind and like, oh, can we move it mm-hmm. around? And I got I got a little tired of playing musical calendar. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of moved to a first come, first serve. You know, I, once I have their files and your data, I put you in line. You know, I do have an option on the website for a, a rush fee. You know, if, if you need this done within like 72 hours, I can I can bump it up. But, you know, it's a little bit more of an expense. But all in all, I'm just the attended sessions just tend to distract me. And maybe that's just my mindset and way of working. But it doesn't doesn't work so well for me. And it's not that I... I'm not open to feedback or it has to, it's not like it's only going to be one way. I, I love getting feedback, but I think for me, you're going to get the best work if you let me focus on it without any distraction. Agreed. So tell me about the coolest piece of gear your studio has. Well, I don't know if it's coolest. It's definitely not the most exciting, but I, I don't think I could work without it. It's the, the Cranesong Avocet mm. monitor controller. That's when I talked about 
setting up the room as a mastering room that you know that was one of the big investments i had to make which actually i mean it's it's close to three grand so it's it's a sizable investment but i mean to me it just sounds so great i can hear exactly what the music is it doesn't you know it's so transparent i'm going digitally into it and then it converts from digital to analog out to my speakers so it's just totally clean and i feel pretty spoiled because i'll visit a studio and their monitor situation is maybe less than ideal. I've seen, you know, some people use the Mackie big knob and that thing's just kind of, no- it's kind of noisy and it colors the sound or they're, or they're, or they're monitoring through a, an old, you know, large format console and there's a noise. Yeah. So my bu- my buddy really- said the thing, the thing about the Mackie big knob. Yeah. It colors the sound, uh, brown mud. And then the metering on it, you get, I think there's like three lights, you know, it's like quiet, medium and loud. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's fine for, you know, budget situations, but certainly not a mastering situation. So I, this thing just sounds really beautiful. I mean, I, I feel like I can just hear into the music and it, it's it's totally not in the way. It's so clean and quiet. I just can't imagine working without it. Every time I've used it, it's an amazing piece. So what instruments did you play that when you were uh, still playing music? Well, I started out on guitar, you know, in like fifth grade. My fifth grade teacher was actually, uh, every Friday afternoon, he would bring his guitar to school and we'd sing songs all afternoon until the end of the day. You know, it was cool. It was like Beatles and David Bowie. You know, I had a guitar. My dad had got me one, but it wasn't until then when I really picked it up, my teacher got me into it and then kind of taught my friend how to play guitar. He got way better than me, so I switched over to bass, you know, so we could have some form of a band. And we talked our babysitter into getting a drum (laughs) set and then we had a band. So that was more fun than other babysitting situations not even babysitter but you know the guy that has to watch you after school tell your parents to get home that kind of thing so I moved over to bass you know most of my life I was in a band with the same guy and we just had a different drummer so it's kind of the same thing for a long time gotcha so what do you think you bring to a record most often when you master it you know I think that you know the classic thing is just a fresh perspective a detailed ear you know a lot of times I'll get a record in and this kind of goes back to the big knob thing, but you know, my system allows me to hear noise and clicks and pops, mm-hmm. you know, very clearly that often go unnoticed, you know, in less than ideal situations. So, you know, aside from making the record, you know, as good as it can be and making the songs work well as a group, you know, just kind of a quality control element where, oh, hey, did you guys hear that, that click, you know, in that part where you probably actually didn't want that there, you know, I can remove that very easily, but it's just takes someone to actually listen to it and do the work my, my big thing is quality control i mean and that's one of my my biggest beefs with things like lander and the automated services is it's not so much how they make the song sound i mean that's debatable but with those things nobody's really doing the quality control mm-hmm. like listening for noise noises clicks and pops i mean all those things if your source file has that then the master is going to end up with that too and that's really my biggest beef with those kind of services is that they advertise it as mastering and it's 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 stereo bus processing and you know I, i've even heard some stuff that sounds fine but it's not a final master that you're going to release you know the songs still need to be sequenced mm-hmm. quality there's a number of quality control details that you know just either don't happen or get poorly done unless you're hiring a human to do it yeah i, I think it's a, a a thing that you know when you read forms these days you're getting a lot of people who are like well i'm mastering my own because every time it comes back it comes back different do you have any thoughts on how when you shape things about whether the mastering engineer should be trusted etc cetera, etc cetera, and how you deal with like that kind of qualm 
again, going back to a different question, I just really think communication is key. If if I come back with an initial master and and the client isn't happy with it, you know, I'll, I'll redo it. You know, it may involve starting from square one and reprocessing through the analog gear again, or it can be as simple as they just want it a little louder, and I can make those adjustments digitally. You know, after you know. So sometimes it's an easy fix, sometimes it's starting over, but you know, I, I want the client, you know, it's in the end, it's the client's record. I, I want them to be 110% happy with it, whatever it takes, even if it's something I'm not crazy about. You know, a lot of that is the loudness. You know, people have asked me to go louder and louder, and there's a few albums where I think we kind of passed that loudness potential where, yes, it's technically louder on, by numbers, but it doesn't, sa- doesn't feel any louder or sound any louder, and it's actually sort of lost its, you know, intensity or it's lost its its feel so with that since we're getting into loudness uh do you have any feelings about the whole loudness war thing how you see 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 this thing the loud thing works better for some genres than others and what i think it starts to get a little skewed is when you know i'm mastering a jazz album or a folk album and they come back with the loudness question and it's it's like yeah you know it once you start pushing it to a certain average loudness it just starts to feel unnatural you know especially with acoustic based instruments and then the, the other th- tricky thing is when you have a record that has, you know, 10 rock songs and an acoustic song, you know, you, if you just go by the numbers, that acoustic song is probably going to actually sound louder than the rock mm. song. So you got to kind of cue into some similar thing. You know, the rock song and the acoustic song both have vocals. So you sort of cue into that and say, D- does the vocal level make sense from song? You know, you know, you don't want the acoustic song to overpower the rock song. So, you know, there's... Some people argue that the the loudness war is dying off. I, I don't I don't know that it is. I think people are just starting to know more about it and and trust what other people are suggesting to them. Like, hey, you know, we can go louder, but is it doing the music justice? And then we're we're kind of in the early stages of all these streaming services applying their own loudness normalization. Mm-hmm. So, and there's no standard, unfortunately, which makes it a mess. But we're reaching that point where. In some cases, you're turning it up just to have the streaming service turn it down. And when you could have left all that dynamic range in and and not squashed it. Yes. When you say you don't think it's dying down, I think you know the thing that happened is is that we did hit maximum loudness. Like there used to be a thing that almost like every year somebody would finally come up with the way to get the record even louder. And now it just seems like that there's just no technology that makes any record that much louder than the other records. Yeah, I mean, we're all up against the same, you know, digital ceiling. There's every year or two, like you said, there's a limiter that comes out that can push things louder without, you know, so much distortion or artifacts. But at this point, we're talking very microscopic differences. And Yeah, no one can do, really get a dB to a dB and a half louder, whereas, like, let's say 14 years ago, that was the case that some people really knew how to get, like, a minus five uh, record that would, like not be the most disgusting sounding thing we ever heard. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the early, or I'd probably say mid-90s, you know, a lot of the digital tools started get, getting pretty good, mm. and that's when you notice records just getting insanely loud, but not, not sounding distorted, mm. you know, distorted or weird. So what's the most common mistake you think people do that makes their record not come out as good as it could before mastering? I do a lot of prevention and education to prevent this but i see you post a, a lot, lot about sent- uh, uh, online you try to give uh engineers on your twitter feed and stuff like that uh, a good perspective on what they should do well one mistake or thing i see bands doing a lot of especially with mastering being the last step of the process is 
just setting an unnecessary or unrealistic deadline to get their project done. You know, if they step back and think about it, there really isn't such a huge rush to get things done usually, and maybe it'd be best to just take your time and do it right. Another big mistake I see bands making is when they're doing a vinyl release, kind of picking or choosing the least expensive and quickest turnaround place, but a lot of times those records don't come back sounding that great because there's still a very important step after it leaves my hands, um, the lacquer cutting process. So it's really not a place you want to cheap out on. If you're going to spend two or $3,000 know, to get your album released on vinyl, you may as well just spend that extra amount and just make sure it's done at a really great pressing plant and that you use a really great lacquer cutting engineer to to do the initial transfer of the digital audio to the lacquer, because that's really what can make or break the sound of the record. Too often I see people come back with a record that just, you know, doesn't sound great. I mean, yes, it's on vinyl. They have something they can sell at shows. It's big and it looks cool, but sometimes you get stuff back and it just doesn't sound that great. And there's things you can do to prevent that. I actually have a a post on the Pro Audio Files website. If you search importance of lacquer cutting for vinyl, you'll find an article that I wrote about a few steps that you can take just to make sure that, you know, when you do press your record on vinyl, that it comes back sounding as good as possible. And one final thing that I see a lot is bands, you know, emailing me weeks, months, or even years later looking for their master files. And, you know, fortunately, I keep all this stuff and have some file management systems in place to make it easy and painless for me to send it to them again. But, you know, really you should just have at least two or three copies of of all your masters, you know, on a hard drive, on a backup hard drive, and also in a Dropbox account. I mean, it's it's not a very fun thing to do, but you're going to be thankful that you have all this stuff so you're not stuck with MP3s or only CD copies of stuff. You know, you want to archive the high-resolution stuff. You want to archive everything, really, including the unmastered mixes, because, you know, down the line, you might want to make a compilation CD, a best-of, or just remaster the album. And being stuck with the 16-bit 44.1K WAV files, you know, that might paint you in a corner that you may not want to be stuck in, you know, down the road if you need to re-release or reissue the album, or maybe it's finally time to do a vinyl release and you're just stuck with the loud digital master and that's not going to work very well for vinyl. So you've mentioned this noise thing a lot. A lot of the mastering engineers we've talked to on this podcast haven't gone into this. How often, and can you tell me more about the process of doing the de-clicking and doing the denoising? Um, yeah, I mean, basically I print... You know, I'll print everything through the analog gear as is. I don't do any cleanup because you never know if somebody actually mm-hmm. wants that. And if they do want, if I were to do it right away, if I would clean things up right away and then process it, and then they say, hey, you know, we actually really like this noise or mm. this was part of the song. If I've taken that out before the analog print, it's a lot of backtracking. So I print everything as is. But then after it's printed through my analog chain, you know, I, I listen to literally every second of the, the record. And if I hear, you know, a click, whether it's a bad edit or you know, something from a bass guitar or the, the big thing is vocals. And there's probably a whole lot of them in this podcast, you know, mouth saliva noises and mouth clicks, you know, those things just sort of, uh, at least on my, you know, on a nice system, they sort of stick out like a sore thumb. And it's, it's not that I want to, you know, sanitize the whole record, but 
by the time things are so loud, those things are have become unnaturally loud. You know, the, a mouth click is as loud as, you know, a bottom snare mic or something, and that's just not natural to me. So, I, you know, I do like to kind of go through ser- songs and just make sure there isn't anything that's distracting from the music. And then the other thing is just, like I said, no, you know, static noise at the beginnings or ends of songs, or maybe there's a quiet breakdown in the middle where these things become a little more exposed. And it's not to say that it always needs to be removed, but I think... The majority of people would prefer that it be removed, and part of the problem mm. is they can't always hear it accurately. They don't know it's there. You know, I've I've had I've had a few engineers, you know, after the project, sort of email me and say, well, "I really appreciate the cleanup mm. work that you did." You know, we didn't think that we thought it was just gonna we we're gonna have to live with that, and now it's it's taken care of and it sounds nice. And again, if somebody writes me and says, "Hey, what's up? I really wanted that in there," it takes me about you know ten seconds to get it back because I have a I've printed it, so it's it's easily accessible. Mm, very cool. So the other thing you keep referring to is your analog chain. It seems everybody's starting to get on the thing that the digital tools have caught up to analog. Can you tell me why you feel it's necessary to have your analog chain in the mastering process? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's very true. The, the digital tools are amazing right now. I mean, Universal Audio does great stuff. You know, Fab Filter. I, I could name a bunch of companies, but in the mastering world, in the mastering world, there's still something that sounds great about hitting the analog to digital converter a little bit, you know, clipping it a little bit, which sounds like a it would be a bad thing, but it's 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 a pretty common thing in the mastering world. You know, you you record it in, you're actually clipping the converter, but you know, a mastering grade analog to digital converter can handle that to a certain point and it actually you know that became the sound of the loudness wars to some degree and to me there's there still isn't a plugin that can can do that there's plugins that you know i have a manly massive passive hardware eq mm-hmm. i think the universal audio one sounds you know 90 percent there if not more same with the very of the manly very mu i also love the plugin but I bought the hardware version because I wanted it at a certain point in the mastering chain, and it it, it was after you know it's tor- that's towards the end. So I had to, I felt like I had to get the hardware version because I don't want it early on mm. in the chain. I want it to be one of the last things before it goes back to digital. You know, I actually have two sets of converters. I have a, a Lynx Hilo and the Crane Song Head, and mm. it depends. It depends on the music. You know, I never know. You know, I first thing I do is I put on the the material and I say, do I have a favorite converter that the, that it sounds good coming out of? Sometimes the music, sometimes it seems to sound better coming out of the head, sometimes out of the, the links. And then same with going back in, you know, do I, am I liking how the, the head sounds capturing it back from the analog chain or do I like the helo? Mm. You know, I have another thing called the dangerous liaison that mm-hmm. makes it really easy to to just pop these things in and out and do an instant AB, you know, I don't have to record it and listen, you know, I can do it in real time. So, you know, it's, it's pretty subtle, but you know, when you have the option to do it in real time, you can hear that. Yeah, I actually do like this a little bit better. So again, going back to your question, there's so many great plugins and I wouldn't be afraid to master. And I don't, I don't do every project through analog chain. In fact, this morning and after this podcast, I'm going to finish a record that I'm going to do all in the box because it's more of an acoustic record. The songs are for all over the map, stylistically and engineering wise. And some of them, despite my efforts, have already been limited and they don't have the ability to go back. So I'm kind of dealing with a rough project here. So I'm just going to do that all in the box because it's just kind of all over the map. So I'm not I'm not afraid to stay 100% digital on certain projects, but when I get the ideal, you know, rock project that has no limiting and they really want it me to do my thing, then that 
then I'll go analog. I'll still use plugins before the analog chain to kind of sweeten things up and get everything more on the same page. And then the analog gear sort of does the, the, the broader strokes. And the, the big thing is just being able to clip the input of that converter, you know, anywhere from a little bit to a lot, depending on the style of music. That's, that's to me the last thing that some software developer needs to make is the sound of and there's starting to be a few plugins out there for for clipping and simulating that but they're just not quite there yet and i still prefer to go analog for those situations and i I think also it it sort of helps you know people like to see analog gear it's as cheesy as it sounds it's not hard to buy a few plugins and set up a website but it sort of separates things a little bit and says that you know maybe this guy takes it seriously and is invested in his his business and his work and it's not to say i use every piece of analog gear on every record but the tools are there if needed nice so let's get into a little bit of your musical development and all that fun stuff what's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect to me, a perfect record is just something that you can listen to from front to back, which we rarely do these days. But, you know, it's just every song, you know, has great attention to detail. You know, they didn't slap a, a filler track at the end or a rough mix. You know, they just everything is dialed in from start to finish. I like that. How about five of your favorite records throughout your musical development? I was in fifth grade when Nevermind by Nirvana came out, and that was just like the perfect age to start getting into music. When I, when I heard it, I thought, wow, you know, I I can actually identify everything happening in the song. You know, there's drums, there's bass, guitar, vocals. You know, we were coming out of the 80s where there's just all these bizarre sounds that seemed unattainable for, like, the average kid. But when I heard Nirvana, never mind, that just really struck a chord with me. And then it was a lot of fun to watch the watch how, how big they got. Mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't know at the time how huge of a record that was going to be. You know, I just remember when Smells Like Teen Spirit went from being this weird video they played late at night to, like, it being on every hour. Mm-hmm. Tom Petty, Wildflowers is just a beautiful-sounding album. Mm-hmm. The Ramones' first album, just for its simplicity, I mean, I, I come back to that one a lot. And they actually just released a mono version of that. Did they? I didn't <laughs> see that. Yeah, the 40th anniversary, I think it was done at Abbey Road, they did a mono mix, which kind of ties into my Beatles thing, too, is, you know, the Ramones' album had the guitar pan to one speaker and the bass to the other, and it was a little hard to listen to sometimes. Although it was great, I used to just put on the... I used to turn off the channel with the guitar... So I could be the guitar, you know, practice guitar to that album. You could just turn off the speaker that had the guitar, and then you could be the guitar player. Mm-hmm. So it's actually cool for that. But same with the Beatles, you know, when they did these mono reissues, it just sounds more like a band playing together, just mm. gelling. You know, the crazy panning is interesting, but it's so disjointed. And when I listen to the mono version of the Beatles stuff and the Ramones, it finally just sounds like a great band playing together. Wow, I got to so, hear that. Yeah, check that out. Another one is Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. It's a double album, so it's a lot to take in. But, you know, I I had thought I knew everything I needed to know about Fleetwood Mac just because they're all over the radio. But if you really dig into Tusk, you know, they really got experimental and were kind of trying to latch on to the whole Talking Heads kind of punk new wave thing. I didn't realize that was the influence on that record. Yeah, if you listen to Tusk, you know, you know, there's a lot of bizarre, you know, I, I hear a lot of Talking Heads influence in that record. And, you know, they had all the time and money in the world, mm-hmm. so that's just... Really cool stuff going on there. And the Beatles, Rubber Soul, mm-hmm. another one, just front to back, you know, almost all hits. And 
and really well done. What's your favorite record of recent times and what's inspiring you about it? Well, unfortunately, you know, working on music all day, I just have less and less time to listen to, to new music. I mean, when I do get a rest, I, I've actually, there's a lot of great podcasts out there now, including this one. There's one called Working Class Audio. Love that one too, really yeah. Great. So I, I find myself li- listening to more and more podcasts and talk radio, but there's a band called The Raining Sound that put out a record. It's it's probably not even new anymore, but the, the most recent one called Shattered. Um, not not because it sounds greater. I mean, it sounds cool. They they went for more of a a retro vintagey sound. But there's some really cool string arrangements on there that sort of took me by surprise. And um, Greg is just a great songwriter. You know, he's had a few incarnations of the band, but you know, just a really well put together record and I wish I had time to listen to more new music but it just doesn't happen unless someone sends me you know a reference track to listen to something like that yeah I joke about the uh, qualifications to be on this podcast and usually it's that you've reached the point in your life that uh, you have no more time to listen to music and this is the hardest question of them all (laughs) It, it, it really was it really was so what have you been working on lately the big thing I finished up was kind of like how I said I still I'll do an occasional mixing or producing thing, and a project fell into my lap that I didn't want to say no to, which was, it started out as mixing a 7-inch for Tommy Stinson of The Replacements. So awesome. Um, So awesome. And, you know, that's been out for a little while, but, you know, I eventually got the gig of, you know, he wanted me to mix the whole album. So he was sending me tracks, and I was mixing them as they came in. And there was a little bit of downtime before I had to master it, and then I started adding, you know, well, he actually wanted me to add some backing vocals, things like that because he does this all at his house and he had a few live sessions and whatnot. So I, you know, added some backing vocals, tambourine, acoustic guitar, you know, all the bells and whistles as I was mixing it. And then I ended up mastering it at the end of the summer and that'll be out in January. Very cool. I can't wait to hear that. that. I'm such a, such a huge fan. Yeah. So it was started out as a solo record, but it's coming out under his band name called Bash and Pop, which after the replacements broke up, he did a record as about 1993, and instead of calling it a Tommy Stinson record, he said, I want a band name. So it became Bash and Pop. And it was honestly one of my favorite sounding albums. Mm. Um, ironically, up at Simple Studios, the CD was sitting in the CD rack back when studios had those. And I remember thinking, oh, why does that sound familiar? I think it's the guy from The Replacements. Let's put it on. And the drum sound is just one of my favorites. And something I always, you know, when I was producing, I would shoot for that kind of drum sound if it was anything pop rock oriented just such a cool sounding record so you know then he just he did a few solo records and joined guns and roses and now this record's back to the bash and pop name and i'm actually in the live band too so i'm gonna be a little bit busier this year playing bass um for the live shows so that's one thing uh did a a new album for the Mr. T Experience. Very just cool. Mastered that that album. Uh, another band from around here called the Midnight Reruns, who are one of my favorite local bands. Like when I first heard them, you know, I wasn't playing music. Well, at least I wasn't writing. I wasn't in a band anymore where I was writing the music or anything. But when I heard these guys, like, wow, there's. I'm glad there's a younger band around here that's sort of playing cool rock and roll music, and you know, they're really hard workers, and you know, not afraid to go on tour for a month and just work real hard. So that'll be out next year. And uh, I'm also doing a lot of tape, you know, dat tape transfers for a screeching weasel box. Set oh, that's rad. Yeah. One of my full-time um, favorite bands. You know, I, I played bass in screeching weasel for a couple of years too. And How cool. Did one of the records with Mike Kennerty, who was also on this mm-hmm. podcast. You know, he came up to Milwaukee. That was back when I had, I just got in my studio and it was doubling as a mastering room and a overdub space. So, you know, we did the drums somewhere and then he came to my studio for like a month and we worked on the 
Screeching Weasel record that came out on Fat Records. Nice. Um, so I've worked with Ben on and off over the years. This summer, he sent me a huge box of tapes and ended up ha- having to buy a DAT machine because I didn't have one. I used to just sort of, you know, there was a guy in town, if I needed a DAT transfer, I would go over to his place. But this is literally like dozens of tapes. So I'm like, I need to get my own machine. Yeah. And just... So anyways, um, I haven't actually started mastering it yet. We're just trying to figure out what we have and then... There'll be a Screeching Weasel box set, hopefully this coming year. That's very awesome to hear. That's some of my favorite records of all time. Oh, same here. I mean, I grew up in high school listening to that stuff, and I probably could have put my Brain Hurts on maybe in my favorite top five records as well. I mean, that's just such a great album. I, I, I am right there with you. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.